You are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. This July will mark the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. To commemorate that anniversary, the Nixon Library has a new interactive special exhibit that includes artifacts from the actual moon landing. It opens Monday, April 29th and runs through the year. It's called Apollo 11, One Giant Leap for Mankind. Here with us to talk about the history of how it all happened is James Donovan. He's a best-selling author and has just published his newest book, Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race and the Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins says it's the best Apollo book he's ever read. James Donovan, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Just to kind of start off, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I had done two previous books on subjects um, that events that happened in the 19th century, the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the Battle of the Alamo, 1836-1876. I wanted to do something in the 20th century, and uh, an editor I know suggested it, and I thought, you know, tons of books have been written on that. I'm not going to do that. But it stuck in my head, and it wouldn't go away, and at some point I realized, you know what, that means something. So I looked around and looked at what was out there, and I didn't see the book that I wanted to read about this this uh, great event. Could you tell us a little about the writing and research process behind the book? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm sure every nonfiction writer has his own or her own method or process, but mine is, I when I take a subject on, I read as much as I can. I start generally reading lots of general books on the on the subject, on the era, um, so I get a feel for, you know, everything and the context, which I think is very important. And then I start taking notes, and I start living in the bibliographies and the endnotes and footnotes and making long, long lists of everything I need to see and read. That includes, in this case, uh, lots of books, lots of reports, official reports, NASA, government, uh, interviews. Uh, and, of course, this was one of the most reported and recorded events in history, if you think about it. Um, and so there was plenty of material. Uh, there's no dearth of that. But uh, nevertheless, I wanted to do some original interviews with some of the people because they were still around, some of them. Uh, two of the crew members on Apollo 11 who I talked to and, and many other astronauts, flight controllers, engineers, uh, flight planners, flight simulators, things like that, just, you know, to get as much as I could and more to, you know, help fill out. Um, you don't want a book that's all summary and not scene, and I like to write scenes, and people like to read about scenes, but for scenes you need color, you need details, and it's hard to find that in general history, so that's why you talk to people and interview them and, you know, ask them silly questions like, well, what color was that blanket you laid on in the backyard of your house when you were a kid looking up at the stars? Anyway. Uh, and I do that for two, three years until at some point I get the feeling, you know what, I think it's about time to start writing. And by that time, I've got like a general idea of the narrative arc I want to cover. In this case, I wanted to talk about what I see as the most dramatic and important um, arc of the story from Sputnik in 1957, when the space race, more or less everybody agrees, officially began, to 1969, July 20th, uh, the landing of Apollo 11, lunar landing, men landing on the moon and returning them back safely 
um, after that, everything sort of cooled off and died down, and the uh, space race was pretty much over by then. So, you know, start writing that and go chapter by chapter and get all my materials and just uh, read them again and write whatever's going to work in that chapter and then move on to the next. You write about uh, theme um, and context and scenes. Uh, one of the thing, in, one of the things that are interesting about this book is that the Apollo Eleven, the lunar landing, is not it's not an isolated instru- uh, incident. The subtitle of your book includes space race. Um, in 1957, the Soviets launched the first sa- satellite into space. You mentioned Sputnik. How did this change the way American leaders and American general thought about space? Yeah, and and that's before I answer that, that's a good point you started with, uh, because I always like to place the event, the major event, in context. I think it really helps it resonate and uh, really uh, gives us a lot better understanding of, of why it did what I what it did and what it meant for the world and the country. Uh, Nineteen fifty-seven, October fourth, uh, the Soviets sent up Sputnik one, a little beach ball-sized sphere, silver sphere with four antenna that couldn't do really much more than send out a radio signal, beep, beep, beep. But it was in space, the first artificial satellite, and it actually created a, a sensation, a frenzy in this country particularly. Uh, you know, for since at least World War One, the end of World War One, this was only 12 years later, we were locked, of course, in a Cold War, and this was the height of the Cold War. And a lot of people either aren't old enough right now, today, or have forgotten how serious that was. And uh, you know how tense the situation was. Uh, some people thought World War III was going to start any time. So when this, you know, our enemy sent up a satellite that was, you know, going right a few hundred miles right over our country several times a day, it just created a frenzy. And people were worried, what's next? Uh, dropping nuclear bombs on us? Uh, Soviet space, you know, stations? revolved around the earth or something on the moon. So instantly Congress jumped into the breach and um, everybody agreed something had to be done. So NASA was started and uh, space race was on. What was the, what was the chartered mission of NASA? I mean, even before NASA, did America have any sort of idea of what a space program looked like or did we have any sort of space program in place at the Pentagon or somewhere else? Well, no, we did not have what I'd call a space program. We had um, uh, we had some places, both the all three of the military branches at that, that time, Army, Navy, and Air Force, um, had missile programs. Of course, some of them were uh, involved with uh, you know carrying nuclear warheads, but not all of them. They had sounding rockets. They had they had their own programs. Uh, in place that were, and some of them were involved maybe in, you know, getting a man into space at some point, but it was very disorganized and competitive and, uh, nothing, there was, none of them were high priority. So they they had a hard time getting budgeting for all this. So NASA was created, um, out of the, uh, longtime national, uh, advisory committee for aeronautics, which was a research and development branch, um, in Virginia that uh, helped a lot, especially uh, was created uh, in World War One to improve our our air superiority and, and played a huge part in uh, World War Two. But it didn't really have much to do with anything in space. 
um, although a few people there were doing some research on it. So they were kind of ready to go. NACA, as it was called, was enfolded. It became the, uh, the, base, the basis for NASA in 1958. NASA inherited all its employees, several thousand employees, and took on lots more and got plenty of funding because this was a high-priority uh, emergency problem you know, uh, catching up to the Soviets who went from one triumph to another. Uh, first uh, satellite in space, and then four years later, 1961, first uh, human in space with Yuri Gagarin. You know, it just went on and on. What was the, what was the scope of NASA's mission? Well, originally, it was just to get a man... Uh, First, of course, uh, satellite in space, and then a man in space, um, uh, because that was clear from uh, just 32 days after Sputnik 1, in, uh, which happened October 4th, 32 days later, the Soviets shot up a much larger uh, Sputnik called Sputnik 2, which carried a dog, Laika, um, which perished a few hours after it got up there. Um, but... Uh, it was very clear. The only reason that anybody would send a dog up into space was because they were planning on, uh, the thought was, and probably accurately, that uh, they were hoping to at some point send a man into space. So it was very clear that uh, that had to be our end game at the very beginning. And um, the Mercury, Mercury program was uh, began soon after NASA was organized, and in 1959, they picked the seven Mercury astronauts, the first seven men picked uh, to be astronauts, and uh, they were instant celebrities, even though they hadn't done anything yet. Did they eventually do something, the, that Mercury 7? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mercury 7's, uh, the whole plan, the intent of Mercury was at least just to get men up into space at first, and then at least orbiting the moon, because the uh, Soviets uh, were, were already doing that. Uh, the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, orbited the moon. And, um, a few months after he went up, we sent up Alan Shepard, who spent about 15 minutes in his capsule, actually 9 or 10 minutes actually in space. He just went up about 100 miles or so and, and landed in the Pacific a few hundred miles downrange. We did another one, Gus Grissom, pretty much similar. And um, number three was John Glenn, who was going to be the first man, at least the plan was, to orbit the Earth. And he did. He orbited it three times and uh, three more Mercury missions. By that time, uh, you know, in 1961, if you remember, May, uh, Kennedy gave his moon speech in which he challenged America to send a man to the moon and return him safely. And so they had already started planning Apollo, which was the, the moon landing program, but they needed something in the middle to go from Mercury to Apollo. They had to have a program which, in which they could perfect and practice techniques that they would need in Apollo um, without doing it on that major scale. So that, that was Gemini, a, a two-man uh, program with Gemini capsules. Were the, was, at the time, was the United States and the Soviet Union at parity uh, in the space program, or were the, were the Soviets still ahead? Well, until about halfway through Gemini, the Soviets were ahead, and they made a big deal of this. They liked to do it on uh, national holidays, 
And they understood the importance of this because, again, to get back to, it's little understood today. And even at the time, not many people understood that one of the two aims of our space program at the very beginning was not just national security, but it was uh, national prestige, uh, a politician's word, which meant, oh, um, your global standing, national uh, reputation, if you, if you see what I mean. And uh, again, this was the, you know, the height of the Cold War. And at the time, there were, you know, this was, you know, free, the free world led by the United States against authoritarian communism led by the Soviet Union. And at that time, the weaknesses and defects of uh, communism weren't as well known. They had had some triumphs in agriculture nationally. And at the time, there were dozens of unaligned smaller nations that, you know, hadn't made up their mind which side of this global tug of war they were going to you know, pitch in on. They wanted some sign who was going to be the leader because, of course, they wanted to be on the winning side, the winning side uh, being better for them in, in several ways. So that's why um, Kennedy decided what can we do? We were getting soundly beaten um, in the, those early years by the Soviets in space, and what could we do to show that, you know, we were superior to them, technologically speaking? And they finally came up with uh, several projects, but the one that he liked the best and thought would do the best job was landing a man on the moon and returning him. So that's why um, that was a big reason why they decided on that and not just any other kind of uh, project. Where did the Russians at all? Did they did they have any desire to go to the moon at that point, or were they just content with orbiting well, Earth and launching into space? That time, well, yeah, that's a good question, because at that time, they were just sending men to the moon. They had sent uh, more than one man on a mission. They had sent, they actually sent two uh, spacecraft up and had men spacewalk back and forth, and they had all these triumphs in the first uh, four or five years. wasn't clear what kind of uh, aims they had towards the moon, but um, a group of people that were consulted by Lyndon Johnson, who was asked by Kennedy to explore this possible program, told him that we think that's such a large achievement and a major undertaking that would put us on equal ground. They don't have anything um, because it would take to do that, get to, get men on the moon would take a major, major booster rocket uh, spacecraft. And it was clear you know, we didn't have it and we were pretty sure they didn't have it. So it would be, uh, you know, we would be starting at the same point on the starting line, if you see what I mean, in the Space Olympics. And Kennedy and Johnson and his advisors were confident that if we committed to this fully, that we could win that race before the end of the de decade was out. And he was correct. Were there any, um, you speak about Kennedy, you speak about Johnson, was there any domestic political considerations or domestic political wrangling between parties um, in, in, or separate interests that, you know, could have put yeah. the, the moon landing in jeopardy? Mm -hmm. um, well, in the beginning, uh, everybody on both sides of the aisle agreed more or less that we had to do something that had to be high priority, had to be done quickly. So funding for uh, NASA was, you know, was very quick and um but later on in the next few years various things popped up for instance uh you know 
NASA's headquarters were in Houston, Texas. And of course, that's and it, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that Albert Thomas, uh, Democrat who was the head of the uh, House Appropriations Committee, which was which oversaw uh, NASA's budget, his hometown was Houston. That was his in his district. quid pro quo uh, for that to happen there. But they um, other NASA centers were apportioned around the country and contracts given because um, there were 400,000 people or more at the height of uh, Apollo working on in contractors, subcontractors, laboratories, universities, probably 10,000 different subcontractors making parts, of course, to get this all done very quickly. Um, so there's not much, uh, you know, inter-party wrangling at the time. Uh, you know, everybody saw that this was necessary. Uh, you know, the nation had to pull together to do this. So not, not really early on, not at all. Jim, you talked a little bit about the command center in Houston, and there's also the launch site at Cape Canaveral. Can you take us through the operational structure of NASA's missions to space? Sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, we were starting from scratch, basically, uh, at the very beginning. Um, and NASA was originally part of the NACA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. But it was very clear uh, as they, their budgets rose and they were hiring people by the thousands, engin- you know, young engineers right out of college and other people, uh, that they'd need a much larger center. And they had to work in conjunction with, for instance, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, uh, Cleveland, the the Ames Center, all these NASA centers that, you know, kind of specialized in different areas that would be necessary for uh, space travel, manned spaceflight. So those gradually grew, and the the funding was there at one point, I think in 1960, uh, mid-60s at some point, 65, 66, uh, the NASA budget was 4.2% of the entire national budget, which, of course, is just truly amazing and mind-boggling. Uh, the entire Apollo um, budget probably um, was around, it's been estimated, $25, 26000000000 billion. Of course, that's in 60s dollars, a lot more money now. So then about 1962, they moved the headquarters from Langley because they were bursting at the seams to Houston, massive uh, manned spacecraft center, MSC, which now is the Johnson Johnson Space Center. Um, And at first they, you know, they had the Mercury astronauts were just sitting on these short, well, relatively short, you know, 50, 60 uh, foot high uh, rockets that were originally planned to be ICBMs and, you know, carry nuclear warheads. And, you know, they were, they designed a small capsule up there to fit on top of it. And people in America were just aghast. These men were agreeing to, you know, be strapped on top of these massive rockets, which at the time were blowing up with, uh, with regularity as they, you know, did various experiments. Um, they hadn't perfected it yet, but fortunately, NASA decided on safety standards that were just, you know, above and beyond anything. 
uh, something like 999 out of a thousand. Things had to be had to work that 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 frequently, um, and they just everything was uh, started from scratch. You know the uh, what we call the what we call mission control at first was just a bunker at Cape Canaveral, you know, uh, several hundred yards from um, the launch pad. Uh, well, the larger and larger rocket boosters we used, uh, that was way too close. Pretty soon it was uh, w- ended up in, in Apollo, three miles away, a massive, uh, you know, center that with, with hundreds and hundreds of people there. Um, it was just a, a matter of learning very quickly, and um, I think it's clearly the greatest technological achievement of all time, only rivaled by uh, the splitting of the atom, maybe um, 25, you know, during World War II, 25 years ago. But I personally think it's a, a greater technological achievement myself. You write that in 1968, America was ready uh, to go to the moon. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what the spacecraft looked like? There were there was mm-hmm. a couple of different modules. Am I correct? Yeah. What they finally determined at first, uh, they, um, you know, in the early '60s when they were, you know, they when you know when they started, they didn't know exactly how they were going to get there, how they were going to get people down onto the surface and back. I mean, it was they had several theories. One was just build this massive booster rocket and zoom it up there and land it on the moon and, and let it take off. Of course, that would have required so much fuel to do that, and the thing would have been massive. Can you imagine trying to maneuver backwards, you know, uh, rear first, this massive rocket onto uh, the surface? Uh, anyway, uh, they realized that logistically that was going to be very difficult, so they came up with um, uh, a re- uh, what they call lunar orbit rendezvous, where they sent you know, a, a smaller module, the command module, which housed three men and also was connected to the le- the lunar module, which only a small spider-like thing that held two two men. And they would go into orbit around the Earth, I mean, I mean, around the moon. And then the lunar module, which was extremely small, was about as large as a, uh, you know, a janitor's closet. These two men stood next to each other in their suits and there wasn't room for just about anything else besides all their controls because of weight restrictions. And then they, after uh, about a half a day, they had a good night's sleep. They separated from the command module and started coming down. There was one sixth gravity and uh, no atmosphere on the moon. So it was very, very different. This was actually, the lunar module was actually the first uh, true spacecraft, since it was only meant to navigate in space and not in any atmosphere. It was far too fragile, actually, to navigate where there was, uh, you know, gravity and a, and a heavy atmosphere. There were two principal missions before Apollo 11, Apollo 8, and Apollo uh, 10. Uh, what happened on each of these missions? Well, Apollo 8 originally was supposed to, that was uh, in December 1968, and originally... It was supposed to be um, kind of a shakedown cruise. In other words, you know, you just see if everything's ship shape and everything works for the command module and also the lunar module. Um, but at the time, the lunar module was running behind because they had run into all sorts of problems. So 
um, instead of just sending it up, which they had already done with Apollo 7 and orbiting the Earth for several days, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of, why don't we see if we can send it around the moon? Now, we had never done that before, sent anybody above what they call low Earth orbit, which is oh, anywhere from about 100 miles to 1,200 miles orbit, low Earth orbit. Uh, it was a major undertaking, and, you know, they had to figure out, uh, you know, you can't just shoot a rocket, a spacecraft towards the moon. You have to shoot it to an area, a point where it's going to be, you know, three days from now. And um, that engineering, you know, that's, that is so difficult. But they, you know, flight planning, they, they figured it out. They did it. Uh, sent it to the moon. Everything went fine. They orbited the moon a few times and returned. So that was a major undertaking. Of course, that was, they got to the moon, I think, on uh, December 24th, 1968, and um, read parts of Genesis was, uh, it was a powerful moment, and then they actually rang some little bells and said, "Wait, we see something. We see something. What is that out there?" And they rang these little bells they had brought along, and oh, it's eight reindeer and a guy in a red suit. <laughs> anyway, everybody got a kick out of that on on December twenty fourth. Now, was when, that Apollo was when the, ten. I was, huh? was going to say that was when the when that uh, Earthrise photo was taken by astronaut exactly, William Anders. Exactly. The problem. Maybe the most powerful image ever taken from space, uh, you know, and it was the first, I mean, taken by a human, Bill Anders, out, you know, one of the portholes showing the Earth as this, you know, small thing out there, this beautiful, you know, blue and green thing with some white clouds rising over the moon. Um, that was quite something, quite different. Nobody had ever seen something like that before. And it really, I think, changed the way we, we look at each other. I mean, we, and we look at the, the Earth and we look at ourselves. Uh, more than one person said, you know, we went into space and what we, what we found was ourselves, something like that. Yeah, that was um, Earthrise. And Apollo 10... Then they send Apollo 9 up about a few months later. And Apollo 9, the lunar module was ready by then, so that just stayed in uh, Earth orbit. And they separated the uh, lunar module from the command module, the larger command module, and let it go, you know, a few hundred miles away, come back. So they knew they could do those things, logistically speaking. Um, Then in, I believe it was... uh, April or May 1969, they sent Apollo 10. This was kind of a dress rehearsal for Apollo 11. They went to the moon. They they orbited it. They actually separated the lunar module with two men in it, and it went down to about uh, five miles above the surface, uh, went around the moon once, and then went back and joined the command module and returned to Earth. At that time, I mean, there was talk of why, why didn't they just do it then, but uh, they weren't quite ready. There were too many unknowns, and the lunar module itself actually wasn't, uh, it was still too heavy. They had to shave uh, a few more pounds off it to be able to uh, actually descend to the lunar surface and get back the next day, so it didn't do that. So the stage was set July 1969 for Apollo 11, the first mission planned to land on the moon, although most astronauts I talked to 
thought at the time that something would come up. There were still too many unknowns. Something would come up, and they wouldn't quite make it. And uh, most of them thought it would be Apollo 12 or 13 that would actually do the landing. The, let's talk a little bit about the lead-up to Apollo 11. The three astronauts, Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong, how were they selected? Had, had any of these men been into space yet? All three had been in space. Uh, uh, all three of them in the Gemini program. There were ten Gemini missions, uh, two men each, two seats each in the Gemini capsule spacecraft. So um, 24 men had been up there. A couple of them had, uh, had, had done some repeat missions. But all three of them had been on an Apollo mission. Um, I mean, not Apollo mission, Gemini mission, I'm sorry. And the man who was in charge of choosing the, the, uh, the crews for the space missions, Deke Slayton, who had been a Mercury astronaut at, some, at one point, uh, he always said that, you know, these, all these men are trained, they can all do the same job, but really in private, he didn't quite believe that. And you can tell from the way he chose astronauts. Usually an astronaut would become uh, a, on a backup crew for a mission, and then three missions later, he would be the prime crew, the actual crew. Uh, and that held, for the most part, uh, Fred Hayes, who was uh, a, an astronaut who went on a later Apollo mission, was originally part of uh, uh, um, Armstrong's crew, Neil Armstrong's crew, a backup crew for Apollo 8. And um, But Mike Collins, who was very well thought of, uh, as, a, as a pilot for the command module, uh, and he had had some back problems, had those fixed, and Deke Slayton inserted him into Armstrong's crew with Aldrin and Armstrong. So that's how they were chosen. Oh, and, you know, it, it seems like it was just their turn, but Neil Armstrong had this peculiar neck, besides being a, a, a brilliant engineer and a crack pilot, he was the... Uh, you know, he's the only one of the early Apollo astronauts that had ever flown the X-15, and only, you know, about a dozen men ever flew that. They were the top pilots in, in the world. Um, he had this knack and he had, of, of somehow, you call it luck or whatever it was, of avoiding um, tragedy in crisis situations. He had flown uh, 86, I think, missions in in the Korean War, and once had been on a bombing mission in a valley in North Korea, and uh, a cable across the valley had stripped most of one of his wings, and somehow he nursed his, uh, his plane back to uh, friendly territory and bailed out. Then later on, when he was a test pilot, he was flying a B-25, and uh, one of the propellers sheared off and just missed the cockpit and just went off into the air. And he lost uh, two other of the four um, engines and somehow um, nursed that plane back and actually landed it. Uh, in a, about a year, in May 1968, while he was practicing on this strange contraption they, they nicknamed the flying bedstead that was supposed to give uh, uh, the astronaut who was flying the lunar module some kind of approximation of what it would be like. It was a bunch of a heavy aluminum struts and a rocket engine underneath and a seat and some directional rocket thrusters 
and they approximated one-sixth gravity of the moon, and he'd bring it up several hundred feet above the ground uh, and then kind of practice landing it using these directional thrusters. And he was up there once in May 1968 when uh, the one this lunar landing training vehicle uh, uh, started going haywire sideways, and it was diving right into the ground, and he ejected about two seconds before it crashed into the ground. Wow. So whether you call it luck or whatever, I, I, I have to think that his, his ability, his penchant to think coolly, you know, grace under pressure, coolness under pressure in an emergency, in a dire situation, had something to do with him being the, uh, the commander of Apollo 11 and the man who would actually land the, land, the lunar module on the surface of the moon. How about the other two gentlemen, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins? Buzz Aldrin was brilliant. He was the most brilliant of the early Apollo astronauts, the 50 or so Apollo astronauts. He had done uh, his, he got a master's in, in science at MIT um, with his uh, thesis, and it was called Line of Sight Guidance Techniques for Manned Orbital Rendezvous. And it was so brilliant. It had so many, um, so much good material, groundbreaking, pioneering material in there that uh, NASA, NASA's scientists and engineers actually used parts of it uh, for their, you know, programs. Uh, he, but he was a kind of a, he was brilliant, but he kind of lacked some, uh, the knack to make small talk. And um, he wasn't much of a team player, and he admitted that. He was a, a you know, uh, kind of, you know, marched to a different drummer. But he was brilliant at what um, they needed him to do as the uh, second man in the lunar module. And that was, even though nobody, they had deemed early on that no, none of these pilots or astronauts would ever be called a co-pilot. So they had, so he was called the lunar module pilot, even though he never piloted the lunar module and it was never uh, expected or planned that he would. So he acted more as a co-pilot, um, kind of a navigator, systems engineer, and did a superb job uh, keeping Armstrong apprised of things like velocity, altitude, speed, things like that, while Armstrong was trying to land this strange contraption on the moon, you know, contraption that nobody had ever landed before, uh, because how could you? There's, you couldn't approximate the, uh, the conditions of the moon, one-sixth gravity in a, in a vacuum. Mike Collins, very well respected, and, but he was more of a, uh, uh, he was an open kind of guy, and uh, the press, uh, the, the, the months preceding Apollo 11, you know, they'd have press conference and press conferences, and uh, the, the press loved him because he was self-deprecating. He freely admitted he wasn't the engineer. The other, the other two men were, and uh, he'd make jokes about himself. And uh, uh, he was in that in that time. Uh, these Apollo astronauts, almost all of them were were former, or um, at the time still current, uh, Air Force or Army or Navy officers. And they were mostly, you know, meat and potatoes kind of guys, beer and bourbon. But he had grown up in a military family where his father was a general. And if you know anything about the military, they don't get paid a whole bunch more, these generals, the officers, but they are treated very well. 
wherever they are. And uh, Collins knew his way around a, a French wine cellar or a French menu, and very sophisticated, liked poetry. Uh, he's the only man I have ever sent poems to, by the way, and I still do occasionally because we share a love of poetry. But um, he was very capable, and um, you know they figured at the end that uh, if anybody could land this lunar module on the surface of the moon and get it back, it was it was Neil Armstrong. If anybody could, if something went wrong, if uh, anybody could figure out, you know, if mission control couldn't, he he could. It was Buzz Aldrin and uh, and Mike Collins was orbiting the moon, and you know he was the right pilot there just in case something went wrong. And uh, fortunately, nothing went wrong. Although one little thing did, as they were leaving um, the lunar module, their suits were pressurized and they were very large in this small space. Uh, probably it was uh, Buzz Aldrin when they went back in about two and a half hours later after they did their, you know, went out on the surface of the moon, he noticed this little black piece of plastic on the floor and it was a a circuit breaker uh, for uh, something, a system that had to be turned on for the engine, uh, their rocket, their ascent engine to work the next day. Well, he told Mission Control and they said, well, we'll figure out, we'll try to figure out what, what we can do. And they thought there was a workaround. He'd have to get out and maybe do some work outside somewhere. But he said, I've got this plastic pen. What if I use this and put the pen inside, you know, the opening of the circuit breaker? And uh, that might arm it. And um, it did. <laughs> so that was the only thing that went wrong. That was a semi-emergency. Um, at the time, although the landing, of course, was was a bit more dangerous and hairier than anybody expected. Could you describe, just backing up for a second, could you describe July 16th, 1969, uh, the launch uh, in Cape Canaveral, Florida? Well, it went fine. I mean, there were, um, it started, it was at 9.32 a.m., 9.35 a.m. Uh, they were, you know, million about, they, they, uh, estimated that there were a million people who had driven down from all over the country to see this thing at all the beaches and the whole area uh, of, of Cape Kennedy. It was, it was changed. The name was changed, of course, after Kennedy's assassination. Um, millions of people watching it. Uh, there's a new doc documentary that started about a month ago called Apollo 11, which is just absolutely superb and uh, shows a lot of that. And um, they had a the VIP dignitaries area about three miles away next to the vehicle assembly building where there were a few thousand, I think, people uh, set up like ex-President Johnson and his wife and many, many dignitaries and people connected with this, lots of senators, uh, things like that. Johnny Carson was there. And um, it went off without a hitch, which doesn't always happen. Something pops up. Uh, they had to tighten some bolts at some point, but uh, um, went up in a. It was partly cloudy. It was already very warm. By 9:32, people were sweating, so it was quite warm. Um, went up, started turning sideways, and and kind of disappeared behind some clouds. And three days later, they they reached the moon, orbited the moon, um, for you know a little less than a day, and um, the next day separated the lunar module, went down, and they, they spent a night there, 
slept, and the next day came back, and about three days later returned. Could you describe the moment um, that Neil Armstrong became the first man to touch upon the moon? Well, they were originally supposed to sleep for about six hours before, uh, after they landed and decided that they could stay safely. Um, and, um, but they quickly realized they were not ready to sleep and not sleepy in the least. So they asked permission and this had been kind of discussed that it might happen, uh, earlier in planning stages because no event in the world has ever been, uh, more choreographed and planned than, than that first, uh, landing every single thing, every second of their time was, was planned. Um, they asked permission to leave uh, the lunar module and step out. They were granted permission. He depress- they pressurized their suits, uh, depressurized the interior of the lunar module. Armstrong, got, this place, this, the compartment of the lunar module was so small that he had to actually get on his hands and knees, turn around and back out a small door underneath that was probably... Uh, it wasn't even three feet high. It was maybe less than three feet by three feet, you know. And they, he backed out onto a small porch outside. Porch makes it sound like much larger than it is, just a, a small area about as large as somebody standing on their hands and knees and backed out, dropped down this thing that, um, that uh, held the, the camera, from which we saw Armstrong, it was pointed at Armstrong at the bottom of the uh, of the landing. So it flipped down and started. Then he started going down the stairs, uh, the ladder, one by one, dropped down onto the the, the, the bottom of the one of the feet. It was kind of a cup-like uh, foot, and stood there, and then stepped off very gingerly, tentatively, because even though we were almost sure. The surface was very hard, hard enough to um, support a man. We had uh, sent up some probes that had landed there and taken photos. Despite that, there was a Cornell scientist who insisted that the moon, the surface of the moon was full of uh, dust and and that went down for maybe dozens or hundreds of feet and and anything that landed on it would just the surface would dissolve and they would disappear and possibly never, never emerge. So he actually later said he felt a sigh of relief when he put his, you know, his boot down and touched solid earth and stood, stood off completely and said, there's, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, of course he meant to say that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind otherwise it kind of man and mankind are the same thing um but he kind of did admit later that he maybe just forgot to say uh and other people thought maybe it just got garbled and was missing in the transmission but he probably just forgot it i think that's a conclusion everybody has come to now and occasionally you'll see in history books or anywhere uh the, the word uh in parentheses in that phrase makes more sense logically for that, grammatically. Uh, he spent about two and a half hours out there. Aldrin came down about 20 minutes later, 
and they were very busy. They had uh, they didn't have much time for just sightseeing. They had several experiments to to set up, like a reflector, uh, which is still up there. You can they actually reflect lasers off it, and they still they still can and and other um, experiments. And um, then climbed back in two and a half hours later. They left a few little things on the moon, like coins and commemoration of. Uh, uh, the men who had died in the Apollo 1 fire, and also one uh, commemorating their, uh, well, the cosmonauts who had died uh, that we know of. So that was fairly nice, I think. And um, climbed back in, got a, a night's sleep in slings, in this small surface, in little slings, and um, then returned uh, fortunately the engine, the ascent engine, which was different from the descent engine, you know, if the ascent engine hadn't worked, they probably would have had enough air and um, uh, for and oxygen for maybe another 24 hours, and they would have been stranded there. There would have been no way to, to to rescue them because the command module could not land at all. So fortunately, the the ascent engine worked, did what it was supposed to do, and got them up high enough that they could start uh, getting to orbit around the, the moon and join up with the command module and return to Earth safely. You said in earl- earlier in this interview that um, the story arc started with Sputnik and, and it ended with uh, the moon landing on July 20th, 1969. Why do you feel the space race ended on, um, at, this, at this point? Yeah. Well, uh, there were two major reasons, and I think I mentioned them earlier, to enter into the space race. One was national security. Um, and, you know, to make sure we had at least equal or better uh, control of space. Uh, I think uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, while they were having hearings about uh, whether we should, you know, start NASA and, and you know, start a space program. He, he said, whoever controls space controls the world. And maybe that sounds a bit grandiose, but um, I think there's something to it. And I'm certainly uh, much happier that um, Soviet, the Soviets are not the only country, uh, you know, that have uh, something in space. Um, but um, by that time, by 1969, the Soviet Union not only didn't, seem uh, the, its faults the faults and defects of communism were more apparent to us and also some of the you know the, uh, the bloom had left the rose for communism and and also we weren't quite as worried about um uh a a world war uh and that was the goal apollo 11 getting a man to the moon landing a man on the moon humans on the moon and returning them and once we did that uh, several uh, Apollo missions followed, m- most of them more science-oriented, um, because that Apollo 11 was just like an exploration mission, if you see what I mean. It's just getting it done, getting there, and coming back. Um, but they spent a lot of more time on uh, sub- subsequent missions, including using, a, a, you know, basically a lunar rover, uh, you know, looked like a, something out of, uh, on a beach, but um, uh, the American public, once we had done that and clearly shown our superiority to uh, the Soviet Union in space, kind of lost interest in subsequent missions. 
Um, and there were originally two or three more. We, we put up uh, six more Apollo missions, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We know Apollo 13 had a problem, and uh, we barely got it back. But the other five landed on the moon. Everything went well. We, NASA got so good at it and so smooth that it seemed like the danger, it seemed like a walk in the park, and people just um, didn't care that much anymore. didn't seem like it was absolutely necessary for this to happen. Funding had already started uh, from its peak for NASA in, in the middle 60s. And uh, the last three Apollo missions, 18, 19, and 20, were canceled, budgetary reasons. And um, that was it for manned space exploration above low Earth orbit. Nobody has, nobody, no human has left low Earth orbit since 1972 when uh, Apollo 17 was reached the moon and came back. Almost 50 years. Our guest today is James Donovan, author of Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race, and The Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavrodis and your Belinda. <laughs>